format of this meeting is two 10-minute speakers followed by our information break and then our main speaker who will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10-minute speaker is Sarah Ann. Hi there, I'm Sarah Ann, I'm an alcoholic. It's great to be here. I want to thank everybody who provided service to this meeting to make it possible. And um, my sobriety date is February 1st, 2022. And I have a sponsor. She has a sponsor. Both of them are aware that I'm the sponsee. We work I work steps. <laughs> uh, I go to meetings. I have a home group. I provide service and I pray multiple times a day. Um, and so I'm going to tell you a little bit about what it was like. And to do that, I'm going to go to the way, way back of my story and share that I consumed enough alcohol in high school and college to land myself here in AA at the age of 22. And the year was 1993. And if you work the math, there was a relapse. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. So the first time I came into the rooms, I did exactly what I just told you I'm doing right now. And what happened was, uh, just like the literature says, I was granted a life beyond my wildest dreams. And uh, I met a boy, and we got married. And he was also sober. We had three beautiful children. They were my angels. We're very driven, competitive human beings, and so we were very successful at life, but only because we were sober, right? So when I drink because I'm an alcoholic, I get one answer to everything in life. So I answer with one choice to everything in life, the joy and the sorrow, the loss, the success, and that is with a drink, and then shortly thereafter, a drunk. So I get one choice, right? But sober, in my household was I got all the choices, right? Because there's nothing that I could not do with, you know, as long as God was in my life, right? I call my higher power God, and uh, I have God duct taped to my forehead most of the time because I need to ensure that God stands between me and everything I receive in my life. And that's how I lived. And so we built an empire, my husband and I, together. and <laughs> lived a beautiful life until we um, didn't because the business failed. And we are alcoholics and don't always make sound decisions. And we lost everything. And so we lost the cars and the house and everything in the house and the jewelry and the furs and the shoes and all the toys and everything left our possession. We were homeless and we had three babies. So we left Central PA and we went to Philadelphia. We rented a two-bedroom apartment and the girls, three girls were in one bedroom and then my husband and I were in the second bedroom and the cockroaches and the rats took up the rest of the apartment. So it was good times for everybody involved. And so the night we moved in, we put the girls to bed, and I sat my husband down at the kitchen table, and I looked at him, and I said, this is not where we land. And he laughed at me, and he said, no, it is not where we're landing. I said, we're just stopping here for a minute. And what a beautiful thing, because we were sober. And through all of that, and so, like, I'm giving you the cliff notes. I'm giving you, actually, the title page to the cliff notes. 
That took years to happen for us to get to the bottom of a dark, dismal well with three children in tow, looking at a really different horizon than what we had been looking at when those children were born. And we had to figure out how to get back on top of the mountain, right? And we did, because we were sober, right? So every day, you know, we would wait. We woke up, we went to meetings, and we called our sponsors. And at the time, I was sponsoring people. We called our sponsees, and we prayed. We prayed together sometimes. And that's how we did it, right? So I'm going to fast forward to year 19 of my sobriety. I had started a business, and I was on my own little mountain, right? And I went for a run, and I have to say that God has planted this core memory in my brain, um, it delib it's deliberate, it's deliberate. I have never not thought about this memory, and it is so random, I can only believe that God has put it there. And it is that I went out for a run one morning, and I came in, I was in my kitchen, I remembered what the city smelled like that day, I remembered where the sun was in the sky, and I was wiping the crumbs off the kitchen counter, and I was doing fabulous, because I was fabulous, and so I said to myself, I said, self, if you had never started this business, you would never know what a great leader you are. All right? So if you just showed up to these rooms, you don't probably know what I'm saying. So I'm going to help you, and I'm going to tell you that we call that self-reliance in AA. And it means that I had no longer needed the reliance of a higher power on that day. Right? The following year, I celebrated 20 years of sobriety, and I was in my kitchen again. It was a Monday, and my husband said, isn't this the best anniversary year of your life because your home group is on Monday? Are you going to call Mary, she was my sponsor, and you guys are going to meet at your home group meeting, and she's going to give you your coin, and then you're going to go out to eat afterwards, and there's a big pile of people, and I turned around and I said, I did not get sober to sit in the basement of a church. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I was good. I was ready. I had it all under control. So I lived in the next four years on self-reliance, and uh, we like to call that self-will run riot. I was a monster. I was like a Disney villain. I trampled on every personal and business relationship that I ever held dear. I was a cross between Corella DeVille and Ursula. <laughs> Um, mm, it was a party. And uh, so anything that didn't become destroyed or damaged in some way in those four years, um, the next five years took care of that because in my 24th year of sobriety, I took a drink. It was a stale four-year-old beer that was in the back of the fridge from some Christmas party we'd had. And I just went home one night, and I put the kids to bed, and I drank it. You know? What was going to stop me? Nothing. Right? And that's what happens. I hadn't been to a meeting in four years. I hadn't talked to my sponsor. Right? So I drank for the next five years. I never intended to come back. All right? And what happened was my daughter, my middle daughter, her name is Claire. Some of you may know her. And she, she, she came into the rooms, right? She, she, it was up here. And the city of New York took care of her uh, in, in, in the recovery realm. 
And I was home drinking while this was happening, but I came up to see Claire after she got sober because she got in this apartment and this job and I couldn't believe this kid. So I came down off my mountain and I took a train into Manhattan and that night she said, Mom, I want you to come down to this Soho meeting because I want you to meet some of my friends. And I said, I would be delighted. And so the whole subway ride down there, I was deciding what wine I was gonna have with my steak after the meeting. And she stopped me outside the meeting. And she said, well, hold on a second, because when I qualify myself, I, I tell people that my parents met in rehab, not alive, right? But only one of them had survived. <laughs> and I was the one still drunk. And then we went into the meeting. She never said another word. And I sat down, and so for the first time in 10 years in that meeting on that night, I heard the promises. And um, I knew I didn't have to hurt anymore. I didn't have to suffer. You know, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Um, and, and, and that's it, you know? I, 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 I waffled around for a few days. I went to a couple meetings up here. I went home. And I just made that conscious decision, thank you. Um, that one, one day at a time I was just going to stay sober, you know, because I, I, I knew what was here. <laughs> this disease is cunning, and it is baffling. You know, I, I look at myself every day and say, like, I had 10 years that I could have just walked back in here. But it took an angel to guide me here, and it took my higher power, and it took a level of divine intervention. And the one thing I have to say is if you're new, it hurts. It, it hurt worse the second time for me. And um, don't quit before the miracles happen because those miracles are out there waiting for you. They're waiting for all of us. And all we have to do is get up and show up because they're waiting for us to arrive, right? So. I thank this program. I thank all the people of uh, New York City who are in the program because you took care of my baby. And now you're taking care of me. And I appreciate that one day at a time. Keep coming back. Our second 10 minute speaker is Matt. Hi everyone, I'm Matt, I'm an alcoholic. It's hard to follow that, I'm gonna try. Um, last Wednesday, I was at the by, the, uh, by the Book meeting, and I was at the round table, I was talking to my friend Josh, and I said, how do I consolidate the carnage of my life, I see you Josh, into 10 minutes? This is, how do I do it? And he goes, why don't you just give a message of strength and hope? I was like, that's a good idea. So I'm going to try to do that tonight. Um, a little bit about me. I grew up in Bayside, Queens, a middle-class neighborhood. I look fondly on those days in the 70s. Uh, I love the music of the 70s. I love the music of the 80s. Um, one thing about my childhood that sort of isolated me is I had a speech impediment. So the kids were merciless on me. They made fun of me. I was very tall. I was a target of the bullies. I wasn't a fighter. 
So they pounded me all the time, they made fun of me all the time, they never fit in. I was very smart, so I was with the geeks, I wasn't with the athletes, I was always isolated. So this you hear a lot. So I did well in school, did well in high school, didn't drink till I got to college. I went to this school called Cooper Union in the village, it was hard to get into, and I got there, it was like, wow, I was with all these like really smart people, and I went from the top of the class to the lower third of the class. It was tough. But what I discovered in college was something called alcohol. I went to my first fraternity party, and these guys gave me this like pink liquid. And I'm like, what the hell is this? They go, just drink it. And it was like grain alcohol, like mixed with like Kool-Aid or something. And it was like, this is the greatest thing in the world. I was like, it blew my mind away. Like here, I couldn't talk to girls. I couldn't talk to guys. I, I couldn't do anything. And now it liberated me. And like, someone had to escort me home. I was so messed up that night. I was living on Waverly Place in the village. And now it was Friday night drinking, Saturday night drinking. I never had booze in my apartment. It was enough for me, just the Friday night drinking, Saturday night drinking. It was, uh, I joined my own fraternity. It was uh, beer games. It was just like, it just throwing up in the morning. It was a kind of, so there should have been a warning sign, like if you were the best drinker at beer games, maybe you're an alcoholic. <laughs> maybe, I don't know. But that's what I was. I was like the best drinker at all of the beer games. So graduated college, not at the top of the class, but you know, I, I graduated a very tough school and I got an engineering degree in chemical engineering. Got a job just like I was supposed to do out of college, working for the city, and was doing okay. Was living in the 17th Street and started my career and uh, met a woman, got married too young. It was a disastrous marriage, but she was English. We used to travel all over Europe and uh, used to figure out that the Europeans drink a lot. You know, and early in the morning too, like, especially in the south of France. Like, like we would go to drink and they would be drinking like 9 a.m. And I like, said to my wife, well, if they're drinking, I could drink too, right? And she's like, okay. So we start drinking at 9 a.m. in the morning and then through lunch and on the beach, collapse on the beach and come back for dinner and drink more. And, but still the drinking was not out of control. It was, it was, in, it was in check. And um, so that marriage fell apart, a terrible divorce. She cheated on me. And it was at that point in 97 that all of my addictions just came bursting out that was sort of like locked down. And um, so if someone in the rooms likes to call me, I'm a cross-addicted alcoholic. So I believe that all these, all 12-step programs are based in the mind. They're all the same disease. Because once I do one of any of them, something takes over me and I can't stop whatever it is. So for a long period of time, I was a gambler and I couldn't stop gambling. I would go to Las Vegas, I was betting online, and I just could not stop gambling. And then my kids were little. I was on the computer, and I'd lost some crazy sports bet. 
thank you. And I said, I'm going to stop. And at that point, I switched to hard drugs. That didn't end well because I overdosed on heroin. And it ended up, the three boxes we all have as alcoholics, jails, institutions, and death, they caught up with me quickly. Jails, check. Institutions, check, because I ended up going to rehab. Death, I was like three quarters of that because I was in a coma for 10 days. So finally, I made it into the rooms of another program. Four years, thought I could drink. Because, as my good friend Richard says, behind everything is King Alcohol. And King Alcohol started to surface because I thought that I could drink. That I was not an alcoholic. I was just a drug addict. I was just a gambler. I was not an alcoholic. So I thought I could drink. And during COVID, I was sitting in those shelters on those things they built on the street because the restaurants weren't open just drinking whatever they had, usually whiskey, talking to strangers, blacking out. The family would find me, because I, I didn't know where I would end up. I, and there was no way out for me. There was no way out until somebody pulled me out and said, Matt, what are you doing with your life? And then somebody else took me to a meeting. And now comes the strength and hope. Because I was at uh, the Breaking Through meeting on Friday night, and this guy, Geraldo, I don't know why, he took attention to me, maybe because I look so terrible, and he said, hey, Matt, how are you? I go, I don't know. <laughs> the next week, hey, Matt, how are you? Oh, I don't know. He kept coming up to me and asking me how I am. So my friend Chris, who had brought me to the meeting, he kept saying he'd work with me and go, I said, I can't, you're my friend. So I, this guy, Geraldo, kept asking me how I am. I said, would you be my sponsor? And he asked me one question. He said, are you willing? I said, yes, I am willing, please. Please, 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 Geraldo. Would you please be my sponsor? And he said, okay, one thing you have to do. Would you call me every day? That's what he said. So I started to call him every day. And we started, he was my sponsor. And uh, it was tough in the beginning. Because uh, I don't like his sponsor, Ron, very much. <laughs> and uh, my whole fourth step is built on this guy. And that's why I haven't finished it yet. So it was, it was not easy in the beginning, and um, somehow we made it through three months, we made it through six months, I was crying on the phone with him a few times when I'm talking to my son, and it, keep, it keeps taking me to these Atlantic group meetings, which I hate. So I sit in the front to escape everybody, and then I meet this guy, Matt, who's so nice to me. And then I meet all these other people, and everyone's so nice to me. So now I actually like the Atlantic group. <laughs> who would have thought? 
from a simple hello, how are you, to this whole room of people. Like last year at this time, I knew I had no friends, nobody. Maybe a couple of rabbis, that was it. <laughs> and now, I have all of these friends. Is that a message of, of, of strength and hope, Josh? Yes? And all of these people here, I start every day with a Zoom meeting. 7.15 a.m., I start every day. I'm what they call a hybrid. I go to Zoom meetings, I go to live meetings. So, it's a miracle. This program is a miracle. And anybody who's counting days or months and are struggling, just stick with it. Because if I could do it, then anybody can. Thank you. And our main speaker tonight is Joan. Hi everyone, my name is Joan Morgan, I'm an alcoholic. I am grateful to be sober and I'm certainly very grateful to be here. Um, I'd like to thank our speakers, you guys are terrific, you're a hard act to follow. <laughs> and uh, I'd like to thank all the people who do service at this meeting. I am a long talk into the microphone, okay. Um, I'm a long time member of the Atlanta group. Uh, my sober date is October 31st, 1983. Yeah. <clears throat> so this October, I will be celebrating 38 years of sobriety. And that is truly a gift. Um, I spent a lot of time during the pandemic going to uh, Zoom meetings. And <clears throat> I've always been struck by the reading that was done, and I often volunteered to, for it. So I'd like to just read something that's been very near and dear to my heart during this most difficult time. It's chapter five, how it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, and powerful. Without help, it is too much for us, but there is one who has all power 
that one is God, may you find him now. So for those of you who are new to Alcoholics Anonymous, we welcome you. We could not be here if you were not here. This is a fellowship. The first word, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. So our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what, like, what it's like now. I had to make a list because I've been sober for so long and I'm getting older and I cannot remember things. <laughs> so forgive me for having a cheat sheet. Um, I grew up in an alcoholic family, a family of secrets, a family of lies, uh, and a family of violence. And it was very, very difficult. It was very, very difficult. Um, my father was an alcoholic. I have alcoholism on both sides of my family, and I really do believe that I have a genetic predisposition for this disease. Alcohol was always served at dinners, it was served at parties. I had readily, I had access to alcohol when I was a child. I have pictures of myself at family gatherings holding a wine glass. I can't be more than eight or nine years old. So alcohol was part of my family life. And then alcohol became my solution. I grew up in an extended family and I grew up with all of my cousins in Brooklyn. And I grew up, they were all boys, I was the only girl. Why? Because I wanted to play touch football, I wanted to ride my bicycle, I wanted to do things, and all the girls wanted to sit around and talk about boys, and I was totally bored. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I spent a lot of time with my, with my cousins. And they supported me, and they helped me, and they took care of me. Um, and I never had any brothers or sisters, and I was delighted to have their company and to have their support. That changed. Uh, we moved from Brooklyn to Forest Hills. It was like moving from planet A to planet B. And it was a totally different situation. Um, there were... <clears throat> There were different types of people there, and there were different things going on. And I was totally lost. I felt like a fish out of water. And I always had the feeling when I was growing up that I was not enough. I was not pretty enough. I was not thin enough. I wasn't smart enough. I just was not enough. And my mother always told me that. And I believed the lie. So what happened was that when I was in high school, I started to drink because alcohol was my solution. And what I would do is, uh, I had a boyfriend at the time, I was going to Forest Hills High School. And um, what we used to do is we used to ride in his car, we'd go to the back of the high school, and we'd drink this miserable tasting lemon vodka. Ugh, it was ugly. <laughs> but a few sips of that and I felt much better. And then we'd go to White Castle and eat hamburgers. <laughs> That's what you do when you're 16, 17 years old. Um, I graduated from high school. 
mediocre grades, um, but I was one point short of going to Queens College. So I had to go to a community college instead. I didn't like it. I really didn't. And at the time, <clears throat> my use of alcohol increased, um, and I also developed severe back pains. Um, and I spent my first year and a half at college standing because I couldn't sit because I was in so much pain. Um, and I started going to a chiropractor, uh, and he was very helpful. Um, and this is something that plagued me for a, for a very long time. Um, my use of alcohol increased, and then drugs became part of my story as well. Um, <clears throat> I had a, a terrible accident when I was uh, in school. Um, I was mugged, and uh, I was coming home from an event, and my boyfriend at the time had a motor scooter, and we had to go over the 59th Street Bridge in order for him to get me home, and he was afraid it was too icy, and too, uh, it was not a good situation, so I promised I'd get off the train with my friend, and I would get a taxi, and I would go home. Well, I didn't get off the train. Um, I took it all the way to the stop where I got off, and I was being followed, <clears throat> and I had no place to hide, so I tried to run, and these two men followed me, and they hit me over the head, and I had <clears throat> a, a fractured skull, a brain concussion, and six stitches in my head, and I was in the hospital, I was in bed, I was deaf in one ear, and I developed, as a result of that problem, um, something called post-traumatic stress disorder, which did not, we did not know about back then in the 60s. So what was my solution? My solution was to continue to drink and take drugs, and it was the summer of 1969, the summer of love. So I got on an airplane with two of my college friends, and we decided to head to Hollywood, California. And it was really something, let me tell you. Um, but things got worse, Kel surprise. Um, I ended up in places I never should have been, with people I never should have been with, doing things I do not talk about in large groups, okay? <laughs> Use your imagination. Could you hand me that one? So, um, you know, I always had boyfriends. I just want to say this. I don't know. You know, I was just... I was boy crazy. I was crazy. I was boy crazy. Um, and, you know, I, I had a temper and I had a mouth and it's don't mess with me. And they all behaved very well for the most part. So, um, three years in Southern California, and I had this boyfriend who would follow me. I kept moving, and he'd follow me and find me any place I went. And I gave up, and I said, I'm going back to New York. So I came back to New York, and um, I <clears throat> applied for college, because I had dropped out of school. Um, and I'll never forget, I went up to Hunter College, and I saw the admissions office, and uh, they took a look at my grades, and I think I had a 0.1 grade point average. <laughs> and. Uh, the woman looked at me and said, you realize, my dear, that you're going to have to get at least all A's and only one B. And 
you know, in my, in my you know, drunken arrogance, I said, not a problem. And gosh, if I didn't do it. So what happened was that I was working, I had two jobs, and I was going to school at night just to graduate. Um, and it was like I was a, like a rat on one of those, you know, treadmill, thank you very much. Um, I just, I kept it, and the more I had to work, and the more I had to study, and the more I had to drink, and the more drugs I took, and the more, it was always more, 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 and that's what kept me going. Um, I'm getting close to my bottom at this point. How am I doing on time? Oh, okay. Um, so I went back to school, um, and it just, it just kept getting worse. Um, I kept feeling worse. I kept uh, doing terror. I just, I was a mess. <laughs> I was a mess. And, uh, and I, was, I was getting to the point where I needed to surrender. Um, but surrender took a while to get there. And it happened one night when I was supposed to be going to a dinner party that one of my boyfriends, I had lots of boyfriends. <laughs> they, some of them actually saved my life and I am forever grateful for that. Um, so I was uh, roaming around my apartment and I was two hours late and I wasn't showing up and I didn't know what to do and I went from room to room to room and I went into the bathroom to put my makeup on and I looked in the mirror and I had a moment of grace. I had a moment of grace. God spoke to me that day. Speak into the microphone, okay? God spoke to me that day. And what he said was, Joan, you are dying. And I knew he was right. So <clears throat> what I did was um, I decided that it was time to change the way I was living. Now, I have been a member of three or four different groups. I've been a member of Narcotics Anonymous, I've been a member of Debtors Anonymous. I've been a member of Al-Anon. I've been a member of ACOA. I actually started one of the first ACOA meetings here in Manhattan many, many years ago. Um, but what I did is, is I, I just, I gave up. I surrendered. And I said, I cannot live like this anymore. And so um, I ended up uh, one night going to a meeting um, I thought the meeting was on Fifth Avenue in the 60s. So I went across town on the bus and I got to Fifth Avenue in the 60s and I was totally lost and I didn't know where I was going. And of course it was the dead of winter and I was very inappropriately dressed. I was always inappropriately dressed. <laughs> My first sponsor used to say to me, Joan, you have to wear clothing over your underwear. You know, it was spandex and bustiers and four-inch Charles Durgan high-shield shoes. I mean, those were the days. Um, and I was, I was walking on Fifth, and I, I went to a doorman, and I gave him an address, and I said, this is where I need to go. He said, oh, honey, you've got to walk to the East River. So I walked all the way across town, and um, I walked into this room, and, and, you know, now by this time, I was thin as a rail, I was, I was gaunt, I mean, I was a mess. I looked like I was five minutes from death. And I walked into this room, and all these people were bright-eyed, and they were smiling, and their, their 
complexions were good and their eyes were bright and they were so sweet and so welcoming and so loving and you know and I sat in the back of the room I did a lot of sitting in the back of the room in early recovery by the way because um, I really I, I, I was nonverbal I was so destroyed so thank you so um, I joined that group and I found my first sponsor Stephanie Maurer, God rest her soul, she's gone to be with the Lord. She saved my life. We could not have been more different. Could not have, we were yin and yang, that's what we were. But what I did was I realized that I had to do everything she asked me to do. She said, jump, I said, how high? I had to call her every day. Now this was before cell phones and computers. I had to walk around with a little book with all of the members of the group's names. I had to call her every day. I had to have coins to use in the pay phones. You guys probably don't even know what pay phones are. Um, and I did everything she asked me to do. And she protected me from the boys because I'd go to meetings. And back then, these meetings were like an hour and a half. Um, and you know, at the, at the break, I'd stand next to her and the guys would start coming over. And one day she went up to them and said, you stay the heck away from her, she's a newcomer. <laughs> okay. Um, and then she said, honey, I think you should put the boys on the shelf for a while. And so that's what I did. I committed myself to recovery. Um, and it was hard. I sat in the back of the room for months and months with a box of tissues and I cried. Everybody says, where's Joan? And she's in the back with her box of tissues crying. But that, I had to heal. I had to heal. I had a lot of healing to do. So I was a member of that group for a while. And what I realized was that I needed deeper recovery. I needed a different kind of recovery. And so um, somebody mentioned the Atlanta group to me at a meeting that I was chairing. I was doing a lot of chairing of meetings uh, with other groups. And somebody said, there's a meeting. I don't like it. I don't like those people. I don't like how they run the meeting. But you would enjoy it. <laughs> so this is the first, the first Atlanta group meeting I went to was at uh, Marymount College. It was in the theater upstairs, okay? Red velvet seats, red velvet curtains, my kind of place. <laughs> and I walked in and it was the meeting where everybody talked about their service commitment for the coming year. And I, and I think Vince was chairing the meeting, one of our members, and everybody was so excited and happy. And, and I said, this is my kind of meeting. So um, I started going to that meeting, and then we moved, and you know, we had different iterations at the Atlantic Group in terms of locations. But I finally came to the Atlantic Group um, up in the church, and I needed a new sponsor, because Stephanie had passed away. And um, so I asked Peggy B to be my sponsor. And that's another woman who has saved my life. And Peggy gave me instructions right away what to do. Get a service commitment. We're going to this convention. We're going to that convention. We're going to the Cape. We're going to uh, Pockets. We're going here. We're, go we're going everywhere. And I did exactly what she told me to do. And, you know, she often said to me, you know, you're one of the best sponsees I've ever had. You do everything I ask you to do. <laughs> I said, yeah, because I don't want to die. 
you know, this is a deadly disease. Uh, and, and, and you know, we can la now I can laugh about it because you know now it's, some of it's really funny. Um, but you know, these women have saved my life. And then I oh, so what I had is a posse of girls that I hung out with. Okay, so we would what we would do is we would go to the beach. We'd go to, out to uh, Long Beach on Saturday, and a group of us would go there, we'd set up the blankets, and we'd set up everything, and then everybody else would show up. Then we'd come back into town, and we'd go to the 79th Street workshop at the top of the stairs on, you know, at night. And we just did everything together. We sat in coffee shops and ate pie and drank coffee. And, you know, it was 90 pounds in 90 days. <laughs> I've, I still have clothes in three sizes from getting sober. You know? Um, but these girls saved my life. Um, and they showed me compassion and they showed me their grace. And, and, you know, we would talk about things. I never like to talk about things. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm one of these people, I don't, I don't want to talk about it. Um, because there was so much hurt and so much resentment and, and just so much built up from growing up in my family and watching what happened to my father and what happened to my uncle. My relatives, all, some of them died from this disease right before my eyes. Um, and it was, you know, it was just awful. I mean, I used to smoke pot with my uncle and drink with my aunt. God bless them. They've gone to be with the Lord as well. Uh, and I'm still here. So, uh, so you know, I am just so grateful that, that I had strong sponsorship, that I had that posse of girls, that I have a wonderful home group, that I have missed so much. I'm going to start to cry. I have missed being at my home group in person these past couple of years. I've had a service commitment for the past two years. So the first couple of years, it was Lucas and um, Barry. Are they here? Yeah, there you are. Barry's not here, okay. And, uh, and then the next year it was, um, oh God, I'm having a senior moment. Uh, ooh, I should have written it down. I forgot their names. Mar Marla and, Marla and David. Marla and David. So every, Monday, every Tuesday night, I'd sit in, you know, in front of my computer and I'd you know, put my hat on and put a little makeup on and I would you know, <clears throat> do the announcement for when the meeting was going to start. And I loved it. I loved it. But then I began to miss the community and fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I have another sponsor right now because Peggy, of course, is not available. And, um, and I, I'm working with another sponsor, and I have a group of girls that I've just met, um, and they're just wonderful, you know, and they're also helping me out. You know, they're also my posse. I get my phone ping, starts pinging at 7 a.m. <laughs> Everybody's sending their gratitude list, and they're talking about this, and they're talking about that, and I, I want to go back to sleep. <laughs> but, you know, this is, this is what, what I need, uh, you know, I live alone, and I don't want to be alone. And I want to be part of this fellowship because it's helped to save my life. 
I've watched people change their lives around. I've watched people grow and, and, and just, it's, it's wonderful to be part of this and I don't ever not want to be part of this. And as I get older, I'm not always available to be part of it. However, um, I mean, I see all these wonderful faces of people I haven't seen in two years. Uh, and my wonderful friend Allison came to keep me company today. Allison and I go way back. We used to live on the same block and we didn't know it. And one day we met at an AA meeting on the Upper West Side in the ladies' room. She's washing her hands and I walk out of the stall and she looks at me and says, what are you doing here? I said, what do you mean what are you doing here? I'm here for the AA meeting. She said, so am I. We, we were passing neighbors. We would say hi to each other. Whoa, did two years before we actually acknowledged one another? <laughs> it's all God, you know, it, it's all God's work. God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to behold. And, you know, there are, I have a wonderful, rich, and full life. I have nothing to complain about. I find things to complain about, but I really don't. And I'm so grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm so grateful for the fellowship that has grown up around me and that I've been part of. I mean, I find that an honor and a privilege to be part of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I try to carry myself at all times in the way that I've been taught to do. You know, I've tried to be as kind to people that I don't like at all times. Believe me, there are lots of people I don't like. But, you know, I don't try not to take people's inventory. What I do is I pray for them. Peggy had me doing the prayer. I was doing the prayer wheel during the pandemic with some of my friends. Um, I'd wake up and, uh, you know, get on the phone and we would do the prayer wheel together. That saved my life. There were so many things that saved my life. I'm forever grateful. I'm forever grateful for you guys showing up tonight. I mean, where would I be if you guys weren't here? I'd be talking to myself. <laughs> or I'd be talking to Bob. <laughs> Bob's been nodding his head all this time. I love you, Bob. I love you guys all. And thank you so much for being part of my life. And God bless.